I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Proverbs chapter 1. Continuing our study in this very practical book. Proverbs 1, verses 7 through 9. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. My son, hear your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Let's pray. Our Father, we have just been exhorted to hear the teaching of your word, specifically as it comes through the mouths of God-fearing mothers and fathers. We thank you for such that are in our congregation, that by your grace you've made them wise unto salvation. You have committed to them the, the care of the children that you have given to them as gifts, Indeed, you've committed to them a stewardship to raise these children in your nurture and admonition. So we pray, our Father, that this message would have particular and profound impact upon the gospel-mindedness of believing parents in this place and those who are not yet parents, who may not even yet be married. We pray that the instruction and the principles of it would not be lost upon those who are single or those who are without children, but they would store these things up, living by the present application of the principles and the particular application, we pray, in future days, should you gift them with a wife or husband and with children. So Lord, hear us, we pray this day. Give help to the preacher, give help to the hearer, We pray that the Spirit of God would come down. He who inspired the pen of Solomon would illuminate all of our hearts, that we would hear the voice of the great shepherd of the sheep speaking in this hour for our good and that would all redound to your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are coming. We we moved from considering Solomon, the background, and his unparalleled wisdom. We've looked at the prologue here, the preface, our need for wisdom and the fear of the Lord. Now we come this morning to begin a new section, at least in this exposition, of the principles of Proverbs, instruction for a God-fearing life. I've said it again, I've said it many times, and I'll probably say it again and again, is that the central theme of the book of Proverbs is the fear of God. Its emphasis permeates the teaching of this practical book just as a teaspoon of sugar diffuses its sweetness in every sip of a cup of coffee or of tea. The heartbeat of the true Christian is the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord 
will impact practically all aspects of our day-to-day life if we are God-fearers. So what is the fear of God? It is a profound sense of awe, of reverence, of respect toward God that is united with a great appreciation and acknowledgement of who He is and what He does. It's all-encompassing view of life and of God and of our life under God. And therefore, it will produce a desire to please Him and a dread of offending Him in all things. Now, we should not be surprised that the Bible and the book of Proverbs in particular teaches parents who fear God how to instruct their children in the fear of the Lord. Wherever you find parents faithfully teaching the Word of God, where the Word of God is conscientiously, though imperfectly, obeyed, where Jesus is loved and where He is served, there you will find the fear of God. It is the great motivating principle of parenting as well as it is the great motivating principle of the life of the Christian. And if you have the the privilege of living in such a home, your home will be, as it is influenced by the fear of God, it will be a happy home, and such a home will be a foretaste of heaven. Indeed, where they all fear the Lord, where the family fears the Lord, from father and mother down to children, there is a foretaste of glory itself. We sing our desire that ours will be this kind of a home, This desire is expressed in the words of the hymn writer. We sang this hymn. Happy the home when God is there and love fills every breast, when one their wish and one their prayer and one their heavenly rest. Happy the home where Jesus' name is sweet to every ear, where children early lisp his fame and parents hold him dear. Happy the home where prayer is heard and praise is wont to rise, where parents love the sacred word that makes us truly wise. Lord, let us in our homes agree this blessed peace to gain. Unite our hearts in love to thee, and love to all will reign. Now that may sound to some here as high in the sky. How can we ever attain to this kind of happy home life? Well, the answer is to strive to fear God and to teach the fear of God, to live it and to instruct in it. But I suggest to you that the God-fearing family is an endangered species in our day in America. Several social and spiritual factors conspire to break down the health and the stability of the home. Families are fractured and disordered because of divorce, 
remarriage, cohabitation, not to mention the depopulating of families by abortion, and more recently, the promotion of homosexuality and its consequent radical redesign of the family. I'd like to read to you the findings of a Pew Research report dated December of 2015. Though it's dated, I suppose that all of these facts are true, and probably the findings are even more explicitly negative today, seven years later. They speak about the American family today. They write, family life is changing. Two-parent households are on the decline in the United States as divorce, remarriage, and cohabitation are on the rise. And families are smaller now, both due to the growth of single-parent households and the drop in fertility. Not only are Americans having fewer children, but the circumstances surrounding parenthood have changed. While in the early 1960s, babies typically arrived within a marriage, today fully four in ten births occur to women who are single or living with a non-marital partner. At the same time that family structures have transformed, so has the role of mothers in the workplace and in the home. As more moms have entered the workforce, more have become breadwinners, in many cases primary breadwinners in their families. As a result of these changes, there is no longer one dominant family form in the U.S. Parents today are raising their children against a backdrop of increasingly diverse and, for many, constantly evolving family forms. By contrast, in 1960, the height of the post-World War II baby boom, there was one dominant family form. At that time, 73% of all children were living in a family with two married parents in their first marriage. By 1980, 20 years later, 61% of children were living in this type of family. And today, less than half, 46% are. The declining share of children living in what is often deemed a traditional family has been largely supplanted by the rising shares of children living with single or cohabitating parents. Not only has the diversity of the family living arrangements increased since the early 1960s, but so has the fluidity of the family. Non-marital cohabitation and divorce, along with the prevalence of remarriage and recoupling in the U.S., make for family structures that in many cases continue to evolve throughout a child's life. While in the past a child born to a married couple, as most children were, was very likely to grow up in a home with those two parents, this is much less common today, as a child's living arrangement changes with each adjustment in the relationship status of their parents. For example, one study found that over a three-year period, about 3 in 10, 31% 
children younger than six had experienced a major change in their family or household structure in the form of parental divorce, separation, marriage, cohabitation, or death. Brethren, these are startling statistics, but we see these things unfolding all around us. And it's not just outside the doors of the church, it's also inside the sanctuary. Since the family forms the basic building block of a healthy society, beloved, its breakdown indicates its sickness and forecasts its destruction. I am convinced that the God-fearing family is America's only hope for its final, against its final demolition. The dictum is as relevant today as it ever was. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. A nation is only as strong as its families. Sin that debases families destroys nations. Godly families form the strong fabric of any nation. And we who believe this plead with the Lord to fulfill His promise to parents who seek the salvation of their children. Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 38 and 39. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. We want to establish stable, God-fearing homes, not just for our present happiness, but for the happiness of future generations. Those that are under our roof and those who will be born to those who are under our roof. You see, a nation's true greatness is not measured in its gross national product, nor in its military might, nor in its intellectual capital, but in his moral integrity and spiritual authority. God-fearing families form the backbone of any truly prosperous nation. As goes its families, so goes the nation. True prosperity is rooted in strong families where the parents teach and children learn the fear of the Lord. All the temporal blessings for which godly fathers and mothers pray and bless God pale into insignificance in comparison to the blessing and legacy of children who know and fear and love and serve the Lord. Oh, what a great blessing it is to be rich in temporal things. And we've seen those who are rich in temporal things. And with a gust of wind, it's all been blown away. And what is left is what remains. Our hearts go out to those who've lost everything. I've seen the before and after pictures of that hurricane that came into southwest Florida. And, and the TV news, the, the, the vision that you see there is as heartbreaking as it is breathtaking. It's devastating. They've lost everything. 
But brethren, one thing that no powerful wind can blow away is the fear of the Lord. If you have that, you have what is truly precious, and that which remains, and that which you can build a future on, with whatever little you start with. In the wise plan and kind providence of God, a child may lack two godly parents and yet learn to fear the Lord. And this may be true of some of you. Such was the case of a young man named Timothy. His father was a pagan, but his mother and grandmother were Christians. Young Timothy learned the fear of God that made him wise unto salvation through their godly influence and biblical instruction. You see, God can overcome family disadvantages to produce God-fearing young men and women, and maybe you are one of them. And if so, thank God, because you of all people are blessed. But God's ordinary plan for raising up God-fearing young people is through the biblical instruction and pious influence of God-fearing parents. And so this morning, with that introduction, we're going to consider Solomon's instruction for a God-fearing family from verses 7 through 9 of Proverbs chapter 1. Let me read those again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. So this morning, we're just going to look at very briefly, in a very general way, Lord willing, over time, we'll come back to particulars. But notice instruction to parents. You have a responsibility to teach your children the fear of the Lord. That is job one for you as parents, to teach your children to love and fear and know and serve God. Now, I don't need to warn biblically believing moms and dads against thinking common among parents today. Many who think themselves quite modern and very liberated from outdated notions of parenting. These are out and about in the world. One is parental Pelagianism. Well, what is Pelagianism? Well, it's the heretical doctrine that there is no original sin. Children are born, if not basically good, at least neutral. And the philosophy of parental Pelagianism is some, goes something like this. Since children are basically good, they are to be trusted to choose their own moral compass, at least within bounds. Let them decide their way spiritually. That they possess sufficient ability to basically mark out their lives. The Montessori school uh, philosophy is based largely upon this idea that the best parental instruction and guidance is really the least. 
And then parental permissiveness and passivity, which often flows out of parental Pelagianism, is don't stifle your children's creativity. Yes, they might do some things that don't please you, but don't lay any kind of firm hand on them. Don't try to mold them. Let them just come out and express themselves. Be passive. Stand back and watch. And basically, on the other end of the spectrum, we might call parental perfectionism. Placing unreal expectations upon your children. That they never measure up. You have unrealistic goals for them. And they can never please their parents seemingly with whatever they do. Even professing Christian parents who may be members of otherwise solid biblical churches may be unwittingly influenced by one or more of these common ideas, ideas that exert a profound and lasting impact upon their children. What your children are after they get out of the home will be largely molded by the kind of influence they receive when they're in the home, for better or for worse. Now what does Solomon teach about parents instructing their children in the fear of the Lord? Well, just two points this morning. First of all, as you have a responsibility to teach your children the fear of the Lord, there's a basic assumption here in these verses, and it is this, that both parents should fear the Lord. Both parents should fear the Lord. And this is implied when he says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's Teaching. Psalm 34 and verse 11. Come, you children, listen to me. Both parents should be able to say this. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Parents, you cannot teach your children to fear a God whom you do not know and fear. You might be able to give them some kind of offhanded and very you know, well-meaning instruction, but your authority base is with yourself. It's not with the Lord that you represent, the one that you are that has given you these children as a stewardship. You can't teach them to know and fear and love the Lord that you don't know. Who, if you don't love and fear and serve Him yourself, it will all be hollow and meaningless. It will prove to be a sham. Even you who do know the Lord and seek to instill in your, parent, in, in your children a proper fear of God, you know that you can't make them fear the Lord, but you have even less influence over them if you try to exert influence that doesn't demonstrate the fear of the Lord yourself. Your children, like you before them. Enter this world not knowing and fearing God. That's why Spurgeon says every generation needs regeneration. What does John say in John chapter 1 on this very point? But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. 
even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They have to be born of God. You were their custodians, as it were, by loin and by womb to bring them into this world. But God must give them new hearts. But you can't sit back on your laurels and say, well, God has to do everything then. No. You must provide the means. God must supply the grace. You must provide the biblical instruction and godly example. Brethren, these in the Bible are called means of grace. They're the channels or the conduits through which God pours His grace into the family. Biblical instruction, godly example, principled discipline. God has given you a burdened heart and an open Bible and bendable knees. Earnest, prayerful, biblical instruction backed up with a believable Christian life are the chief means of grace to teach your children the fear of God. It can't be all lip. It has to be life. But it has to be a life that backs up your lip. Moms and dads, you aren't perfect. And you know what? It doesn't take long for your children to find out that you aren't perfect. So I don't know if you have this tendency, but don't try to pretend to be perfect before your kids. Try to be honest and humble. I know that you lament your shortcomings and failures. And I trust at times you've confessed these failures to your children as they're ready to understand these things. I offer you this encouragement. You need not be perfect parents to teach your children the fear of God. God has been doing it for thousands of years now without perfect parents. Indeed, we're even going to say that the perfect one himself had imperfect parents who taught him the fear of God. By your failures and by your successes, by your honesty and your humility... You teach your children that God is real, that sin is serious, that God forgives sin, and that the Lord is worthy to be feared and loved and served. When children see that their parents fear the Lord, it makes the gospel more believable and the knowledge of God more desirable. God delights to bless children of such parents. May all the parents here aspire to be channels of God's blessing to their children. I know that that's your desire, parents. You've expressed it to me. I've seen it in technicolor in your lives. Don't give up. The work is not a sprint, it's a marathon. If children who would fear God need godly parents. If that's implied, our next point is plain. The plain requirement, both parents should be unified in their instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. You see the parallelism here. Father's instruction, mother's teaching. 
Chapter 6 and verse 20, the same theme comes up again. My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. You know, Solomon only needed to say this once, but he says it twice to bend that nail over in our thinking. That the home needs to be unified. The primary relationship within the home needs to be unified. That is of a father and of a mother. Not only should both mom and dad know the Lord, both should also be united in their parenting philosophy and practice if they wish their instruction and influence to exert maximum benefit upon their children. Didn't Jesus say that a house divided against itself cannot what? It can't stand. Now we considered Timothy earlier. We may be sure that his parents did not see eye to eye on how to raise their son. He had a pagan father and he had a godly mother. But bless God, the young Timothy heeded the teaching and followed the example of mom and not of dad in these things. The only son of Solomon that we know of is Rehoboam. His mother was a pagan Ammonite princess. And so he wouldn't have gotten instruction in the fear of God from her. Solomon was born and raised by parents whose relationship began under the shadow of sin. And yet God used that instruction to make him wise unto salvation. Now, whether David and Bathsheba agreed in their child-rearing philosophy is not known with certainty, but Solomon's statement seems to imply unity between his parents in his upbringing as he exhorts his own sons. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Hear, O sons, this seems to indicate maybe Solomon did have other sons. If he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, I'm sure that he, you know, he had more than one son. The, Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father and give attention that you may gain understanding. For I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. And then he looks back. He remembers his past. When I was a son of my father, and who's Solomon's father? David. When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me and said, Let your heart hold fast to my words, keep my commandments and live, acquire wisdom, acquire understanding, do not forget, do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Now Bathsheba was engaged in sin with David. Solomon was later born to their union. Though I don't know, I would suspect that Bathsheba was on the same page with David in the raising of their son Solomon. No doubt Solomon was a precious and beloved son especially since she and David lost their firstborn. 
of one thing we may be sure, Solomon plainly testifies to his father's earnest instruction in the things of God. Charles Bridges comments on David's instruction to his son Solomon. This is not the style of a cold pleader enforcing with decent seriousness some unimportant truth. It is the father feeling that his child's soul is perishing unless it be taught and led in wisdom's ways. Parents, do we know this stirring concern, anxiously looking out for the first dawn of light upon our child's soul? Do we eagerly point out to him wisdom as the principal thing to be gotten first? Is it our own first choice, infinitely above the world's glitter, not only important, but all-important? It can have no place if it be not the first place. If it be anything, it will be everything. Earthly wisdom may be a goodly pearl, but this wisdom from above is the pearl of great price, worth getting indeed, but only to be got by selling all that we have to buy it. Is it that valuable to you to teach your children the fear of God? Under both covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, parents were required to teach their children the fear of God. So Moses and Solomon taught under the Old Covenant, so Paul teaches under the New Covenant. Both mom and dad must work together in holy harmony and in heart unison. They must work together before the Lord in their children's instruction. Paul assumed this, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Parents, this is, a, this is a sacred obligation that you have to teach your children. It's in the Lord. It's under His eye. It's with His teaching. It's for His smile and for the good of your children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This assumes that they're both teaching the same thing, which is the first commandment with a promise. And what is that promise? If you honor your father and mother, if you obey your parents and the Lord, understanding that this is right, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Now, we don't have time to unpack that. But you see that parents are together to be teaching the same thing, united in heart in their instruction of their children. So this is where we're going to have to stop today. Next Lord's Day, God willing, we'll ponder the children's duty to learn the fear of the Lord. And so let me close this morning with just a couple concluding applications. First, and very briefly, from what we have seen, moms and dads, do you both fear the Lord? Moms and dads, do you both fear the Lord? I can pose no more important question to you than this. Do you know and fear God? 
You cannot train your children in the fear of a God whom you do not know. I'm not asking, do you attend church or do you read your Bible and do you pray? These are good things and should be done as good and right, but doing them is no sure indication that your heart is right before God. You may love your children and desire God's best for them without knowing the Lord yourself. But if you know and fear the Lord, your love for your children will cause you to desire above all things that they will also know and fear the Lord. This is the first thing. All else depends upon it. Secondly, and we'll spend more time with this last application. Moms and dads, are you united in your parenting philosophy and practice? Are you both in agreement about your children's sinfulness? That they don't come into this world innocent. They come into this world from the very womb speaking lies because they were conceived in sin. Are you in agreement that they are rebels from day one? That their greatest need is to know and to fear the Lord? Do you agree on the method of their spiritual Education, as you talk through various curricula in order to teach them? Do you agree on the proper manner of their corporal discipline? And that is a huge issue and uh, uh, creates much division within the home, but are you on the same page there? Parental disunity only confuses and injects fear and doubts in your children. Your children are wavering. They want a stable home. They want mom and dad that agree on these things. Though they may rebel against them because sin that's within them, they find security in knowing that mom and dad believe and teach the same thing. But if you don't, that's going to create problems in the home too. If you're not united in their upbringing, your children will exploit any division they see between the two of you, to put a wedge between you, to divide you, to play one parent against the other. Perhaps you've seen this. I, was, I tried to be pretty good at it as a kid, but my parents saw through it. And sometimes I got spanked just for trying to separate mom and dad. They said, no, no, not in this house. And they weren't Christians. See, I was raised back in that day, 1960s and before, where I had parents with enough common grace to believe in corporal discipline and to believe in united mother and father, husband and wife in the home was the basis of the stability of the whole household structure. Do you want happy, well-adjusted, God-fearing children? They need to see harmony between you two if you would teach them the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 14, 26, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence and His children will have refuge. A place of shelter, a place to hide in their parents' arms and as it were, figuratively, under their teaching. Parents, 
When you fear the Lord, you encourage your children to fear Him, and in fearing Him, to be strongly confident in His protection. See, the righteous run to the Lord and they find safety. Do you teach them that? By your own example. Godly fear is born of such trust in the Lord. Parents, do you see that your chief responsibility toward your children is to teach them the fear of God? You are concerned to take care of their bodies by providing all of their material and temporal needs. But what about the pressing need of their never-dying souls? You fail them miserably if you do not prepare them spiritually to teach them that one thing needful, to prepare them for eternity. One day they will leave your home bound for heaven or for hell. And your influence upon them will factor into their eternal destiny. God has placed them under your care with His assistance that they may learn to fear Him today, that they may live with Him forever tomorrow. Yet God may bless your faithful discipline, biblical instruction, and godly example to bring them to a saving knowledge of Himself. You have to believe that. You have to live that. That has to be a principle, a conviction in your heart. That even with all of my failures, my children are going to see that I love God and I fear God and I teach the Word of God and I seek to practice the Word of God. And when I fail, I, I confess my sin to them. That they see that mommy and daddy's religion is real. It's red-blooded Christianity garbed in parental love and character. Perhaps you've never considered that Jesus' parents would have taught him the fear of the Lord? He didn't come forth from the womb with a halo around his head, and the parents said, well, we just leave him well enough alone. No. We read of two points in Jesus' life, as a lad, young man, very young, and then as an adolescent. Luke 2 and verse 40, when he's still a wee child. And the child continued to grow and become strong, Increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. I'd love to camp out here for a second. But let's fast forward to him as perhaps a 12 or 13 year old boy. And Jesus kept increasing, this is Luke 2.52. He kept increasing in wisdom and stature. Wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and men. Brethren, we easily forget that most of our Lord's 33 years of life on this earth was lived under His parents' roof. Sanctified reasoning presses us to conclude that His godly parents played no little part in His formation as a man, in His growth intellectually and physically, socially and spiritually. That he was born without sin and lived a perfectly righteous life before them in no way negated, but rather sanctified their parental influence. When they found their adolescent son conversing with the religious leaders in the temple, 
They should have anticipated his answer by the way that they raised him and the way that they saw him growing in all of these areas, wisdom and grace, stature, favor with God and men. They should have anticipated his answer to their question about why he was there. And it reflects back upon the influence that they had in his life. Do you not know that I had to be in my father's house? This is what you've trained me to know. This is, this is the direction you, you have been encouraging me all these years. Shouldn't come as any surprise to you, mom and dad. We may be sure that Jesus' pious parents taught him the fear of the Lord. Of Jesus, Isaiah wrote... The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Now, are we to think that, that Mary and Joseph, however long Joseph was in the house, we don't know, because when he was on the cross, it was only his mother. We don't know when Joseph likely died. What, what stage of Jesus' upbringing? But are, are we to think that Mary and Joseph played no part in the sanctification of Jesus' holy humanity? I say it reverently, but our Lord's human soul was nurtured by the godly and imperfect example and biblical instruction He received from the dawn of consciousness all the way through his upbringing to the day he entered upon his public messianic ministry. So Mary could prophesy when she contemplated the life and ministry years before the miracle child growing within her womb. His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. She practiced what she prophesied. Mary and Joseph taught their firstborn son the fear of the Lord. And brethren, they were blessed, and we are blessed for their so doing. Jesus, as the son of godly covenant parents, would have received a Deuteronomy 6 upbringing, being taught the fear of God through constant exposure to God and the things of God in every aspect of his life. Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson, and these are granddaughters and daughters too, it's not just men, might fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may greatly uh, multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one, or He is only. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. 
And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. See, this is comprehensive biblical instruction throughout the life, throughout the daytime of any, any child that has God-fearing parents. This is to be the curriculum. The curriculum of Joseph and Mary for their son would have included lessons in sacred history of God's covenant people, teaching him of God's powerful and principled dealings with his ancestors in the faith. Not just taught doctrine, but taught church history, we would say. Their education of their son would have taken seriously the exhortation of the psalmist to teach their children the word of God, complete with praises and with exaltation, and with warnings from Israel's history to fear God and keep His commandments, to remember His works, and to place His trust in Jehovah. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, of which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell them to the generation to come the praises of the Lord, and His strength, and His wondrous works that He has done. For He established a testimony in Jacob, and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. See, we have to have a multi-generational perspective as we look at our kids down toward the future. To what end? Why is all this teaching? What's the purpose of it? That they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Complete with exhortations and warnings speaking of the greatness and goodness of God, and how all of these things should thrill the hearts of our children, because the God that was then is the God that is now. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus walked before His Heavenly Father in confidence, keeping His commandments, living faithfully before Him, empowered by the indwelling Spirit of God. He was the Son of God. He is the Son of God. But we must remember, too, that He was the Son of Mary and Joseph. He is the Son of God, and He is the Son of Man. We must not discount the pious influence exerted upon Jesus' holy humanity by godly parents who taught Him the fear of God. Parents, if the Savior needed to learn the fear of the Lord from His parents to qualify Himself as Savior, the Savior of sinners, how critically important it must be for you to teach your children to fear Him who gave Himself for sinners like them. 
This is the greatest possible legacy you can leave your children. Indeed, as you teach them, remember the encouraging word given to parents. I quoted it earlier, Proverbs 14 and verse 26. And with this we will close. In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence and his children will have refuge. Oh, may God bless your example and your instruction, your prayers and your tears to see a God-fearing generation raised up and sent forward out of your homes. Let's pray. Our Father, how can we not contemplate these things and taste and see that the Lord is good? We bless you for the goodness that we have tasted. If we've been raised in a a godly household of even just one God-fearing parent, we thank you for using the means of his or her prayers, mom or dad, and their instruction and their example you poured your grace into the conduit of, of these things and you've brought us to faith in Jesus Christ and into your holy fear. And we bless you for those that have come to know the fear of God who have not had such parents, either one as a Christian, and yet you broke in to their home and you plucked one or more as brands of burning and we bless you for that. We thank you that that the hands of man are, are impotent compared to the hand of almighty grace that reaches down and plucks sinners from such circumstances and makes them trophies of his grace and enters them into the family of God. We bless you for all of these things. And Lord, we pray that your good hand would be upon these parents who desire above all things to see their children nurtured upon their instruction and example, that they might come to fear him, even the one whom they fear, that they would come to stand a head and shoulders taller than them in the ways of godliness. And so, Lord, we pray that through these parents, you would raise up a godly seed who would in the future raise up a godly seed. And so that these parents, they would lay their heads down on that last day of life, and they would say, you have blessed even my weak and feeble attempts to raise a God-fearing seed to your glory and for their happiness. Cause this, we pray, to be the testimony of each parent here. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.